This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And pitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And welcome to our first ever accurately titled Christopher and Eric's True Crime Special Edition. Special Edition. We actually decided on a name for it. Actually decided on a name for it. And it's, we're going to, what it means is we're going to really dig deep into a multiple episode series or a case that we're obsessed with this week. Because that has become more and more of a thing. I I think that uh, the, the interest in true crime has really sparked uh, the development at Netflix and a bunch of places of multi-series shows that we don't want to ignore, but that aren't, that don't really fit into the true crime TV club um, model, if you will. Exactly. And so this is a big one. So maybe we should cut down on the banter at the top of the show and get right into it because we're going to cover a lot of ground here. Which is Christopher giving me a look on FaceTime that means <laughs> shut the hell up. I got a lot to Don't talk about it. Talk about your shoes, your tea, your recipes that I actually ask you about frequently. Right, that you brought up last week. I did. I put you on the spot and we got your recipe for macaroni pie, dirty macaroni pie. That's in our previous episode if you want to go check it out. Even though we are not a cooking podcast by any stretch okay. of the imagination. Well, this is what I would like to say at the opening. Okay, I'm ready. It's a little bit of banter, but it is special edition and show related. This was a three-part series presented more or less as Dateline. I saw it as Dateline. I recorded it on, it aired as Dateline. Did it really? On NBC. I recorded it on NBC as Dateline on my DVR. That's how I watched it. And I want to say, don't hold that (laughs) finger up at me, I'm talking. Um, (laughs) I want to say... A, NBC needs to figure out whatever they have to do to get Peacock Mm -hmm. on Amazon fire. Mm -hmm. Like, for heaven's sakes, if Mm -hmm. Paramount Plus can manage it, I think (laughs) that NBC can figure out a way to make a deal with Amazon and get their stupid app on the stupid thing. And then once they do, they need to put all of the episodes of Dateline in one place. I mean, all of them, not two years or one year or the ones that happened in the last six months or whatever, all of the episodes of Dateline. I'm tired of this. <laughs> Spoken like a Dateline addict as I am, I am as well. Right. I am too. I'm tired of this as well. I did watch it on Peacock, and the reason I held up my finger is if you are looking for it on Peacock, it is not listed as a Dateline episode. It's its own show. It's See? called The Widower. Yeah. Figure this is it chaos, out, and we must bring an end to the Dateline chaos. We must stop Absolutely. this now. I mean, at the, at the very least, 
come up with a Dateline app and just put that on Amazon and leave the rest of it out. But like, I would hate to lose the rest of NBC, but at least I would be able to find episodes of Dateline. This is ridiculous, guys. But this is what they have done, and I. This is not cause for hope. What they have done is establish a Dateline channel on Peacock, which is a streaming channel. It's not a, a database of streamable episodes, and it's constantly in rotation. And you have to go and just sort of check in with it, like a TV station, which and it is shows Dateline not all the what time. You want? It's just ridiculous. No. It is. Yeah. They, this is just ridiculous. I don't know what's going on over there, but somebody needs. And Christopher and I are be happy to be the head of NBC if that's what it takes. <laughs> whoa, we'll come whoa, over whoa, and we'll whoa, come whoa, over whoa, and whoa, 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 whoa. To quote uh, the Matt, uh, what's Pam Huff. Yes, the thing about Pam, one of the best yeah, Dateline episodes I'll tell ever. you, this one reminded me of the thing about oh, Pam. This it was, was the, so reminded me of the thing about Pam. It was the male, the thing about Pam. That's really what this is. Let, let's just give some context, which is my speculations about what went into the production of this. Uh, it seems like this was the passion project of a single Dateline producer who pops up now and then as the interviewer. We're never introduced to any of the date, usual Dateline journalists like Keith Morrison or Natalie no. Morales or Andrea Canning. Never. Um, uh, it it covers, they have years worth of footage. Like they followed this case from the beginning. Yeah, And there was some insight in that. I was like, well, maybe this is a thing that they do. They send producers out into the field to do pickup on interesting stories to do pickup. Oh, yeah. I, like, I bet they've been doing that with Lori, what's her name? The monster. Lori Vallow. Yeah. They just released a podcast about that case. Right. Dateline and I bet they podcast. have people yeah. out in the field doing interviews right along because that's going to turn into a special edition for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think that's totally what they and do. We will, and we will totally cover it here if it, when it does. I can't believe we've never talked about that case. It's a fascinating case. Well, we, we will have. Talk about it. We, yeah. But we haven't done a particular episode version of the discussion of the case. We've talked about it sort of in broader terms. and Yes. The Dateline podcast about it is called Mommy Doomsday, and they're rolling out the episodes right now as we're recording this. God, it's not all available what yet. What a monster that woman is. Anyway, off topic, this episode very much reminded me, this series, this special edition series, reminded me of that. But it also, I thought, was insight into the way that they put these the uh, the datelines together that this producer just kept getting sent he had a rapport and they kept sending him out into the field to do interviews particularly with the suspect right so let's I, we're not going to walk you through every single beat of it because it's supposed to be more of a sort of general kind of deep dive on the whole case but we'll start by saying the inciting incident if you will as we say in storytelling is that um uh, a man named Thomas Randolph calls the police because he claims that he and his wife returned home from dinner in Las Vegas, suburban Las Vegas, and encountered an intruder in their home, and that the intruder shot his wife, Sharon, and that he, Thomas, in self-defense, then shot the intruder. And what very quickly happens is that the homicide detective, Detective Dean O'Kelly, who's from Las Vegas PD, suspects that something really stinks about Thomas's story, and he also thinks that Thomas is really weird. Now, that's something I say with some trepidation because I'm not in favor of people being put under intense criminal suspicion just because they're weird. But there are gaps in his story. There are things he says about the timeline of the shooting that don't sync up with a witness's report. A, a, there are a just some real report. inconsistencies yeah. in the story. The the For instance, the suspect is wearing apparently a ski mask, Mm-hmm. Um, and then somehow, um, 
the ski mask gets taken off and he shoots this guy in the head a number of times and there is no holes in the ski mask and no blood on the ski mask. So it was taken off before he shot him in the head. Why would an intruder remove his ski mask prior to, I don't know, killing both of the people who caught him at, it it was an odd choice. It was, it was very weird. And then coming close on the heels of that was the discovery that the person that the intruder was actually somebody very well known to Mm -hmm. both the husband and wife, to both Tom and his wife. So that was also a weird factor. And then just the way in which he described the timeline that Tom presented to the authorities didn't really match up with what they were seeing forensically. There were no signs of him shooting him in a hallway where he described the shootings as taking place. All of the most of the shooting took place out in the garage, which he didn't say that it happened. Now, you might be, you know, kind of hard pressed for details if you are describing a traumatic event in your life. But that didn't really seem to be the case here. He seemed pretty confident in the account that he gave. He committed he committed to doing a walkthrough video, which FYI, if you're ever suspected of anything, I wouldn't do this video and I don't think a lawyer would advise it. But where he went on video camera and showed the cops sort of demonstrated physically you know, he goes, bam, 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 to he indicate when he shot and where. acted out. It was yeah. really bizarre. It was really bizarre. Like, when he was turning his body's, his wife's body over in the, in the re- he grunted and groaned and mimed as though he was actually mm-hmm. turning over a body. It was, like, really strange. And it's, that's really our first evidence that this guy has something strange about his demeanor, something that's a little off, that's a little smug, that's a little emotionally disconnected from what's happening. And he's described again and again, and we see it, we see proof of it, as arrogant. He's an incredibly arrogant guy. Not really sure where that arrogance comes from. He's sort of profoundly kind of an average dude. He's not very accomplished in his life. He's had a sort of, well, as we come to discover, a checkered past, you know? I think he's actually fairly accomplished in his life. It's just at a series of pretty nefarious things. Right, as we soon discover, like, right. He, he was giving himself points for successes that, you know, aren't necessarily um, available or apparent to an outsider. His Yeah, right. he doesn't, for all intents and purposes, he doesn't seem all that remarkable. And yet he behaves like God's gift all the mm-hmm. time, which I think just as he's at least a psychopath and maybe a narcissistic psychopath. And he even says that he thinks he's a narcissist mm-hmm. at one point in the millions of interviews, which I am unable to separate from one okay. from another. And I want to stop us here just for a second. Well, not stop us, but take a little side trip here because the word narcissist gets tossed around a lot on the internet these days. Like any person that disagrees with somebody gets branded a narcissist. Not that kind of narcissist. Not not a social media narcissist, but somebody who literally genuinely does not see other people as being important or maybe even real, almost like background scenery in their Mm -hmm. life. Like Mm -hmm. everything that happens to them is the only thing that's important and everybody else is really just an extra in their show. And there's something really disturbing about it because what you see again and again in specials like these is that a narcissist can come to enjoy the attention that comes from being on trial and being incarcerated, the the sense of victimhood they can try to project around all of that narrative, and they can 
they don't have things, sort of social restraints kind of pulling them back from this, or they don't have any shame, really. That's how it looks. They seem shameless, you know? If it's about them, if it makes them the center of attention, it's good. They welcome it. They try to stoke whatever fire is fueling it. And it gets, and it definitely, that comes to play a role in this case. So, that, dis- combined with his kind of lack of empathy for anybody else anybody, in, involved anybody. in the story. Like right. really the only person about whose feelings and to whom really he seems to be, the only feelings that he seems concerned about are his. Yeah. Nobody um, else is despite the impact on all the other lives. There doesn't seem to be any real sense of concern for that. So he had not been married to Sharon, the victim here for very long. One of the two victims, shooting victims. Um, Sharon had a daughter who had just given birth to a grandchild, Sharon's grandchild. Actually, she was still pregnant with the child at the time of the murder. Yeah, she was still pregnant. And that was so tragic because she never got to meet her grandchild. Yeah. Okay. So what happens is that it soon becomes clear that Sharon went out with a friend of hers, Alice. I think they both worked at a hair salon together. They were both hairstylists and said to Alice, I'm going to make a will. And I'm going to give it to you to keep, <laughs> which suggests Sharon maybe thought something wasn't entirely right with her new husband. Well, she married very quickly. We later find out that when Sharon discovered that her new husband had purchased a number of uh, life That's insurance yeah. policies with himself as the beneficiary um, on her, um, it made her a little suspicious. So mm-hmm. she wrote her own will um, with the help of this friend and set it aside outside of his knowledge and awareness and said, if anything happens to be me, make sure this gets to my daughter. Exactly. Because she wanted to leave her house and those kinds of things to the daughter. And that is exactly what happens. So after Sharon's death, Thomas prepares to take ownership of the house where they were living. And Colleen, Sharon's daughter says, Oh, not so fast. I have this will, an actual will, from my mother, and this house is now mine. And so Thomas's anger over this further adds to the detective's oh suspicion. Just not a happy man. Threatening voicemails, calls the daughter a liar, which is not clear what she's lying about, given that the will is authentic. You know, like, just really, really, and also just really deepens the suspicion of the Las Vegas police, who then have to play a role in helping Colleen take possession of the house, get Thomas out, allow him to get his actual things out, you know? They went over to the house. One of the things that's interesting about this is for whatever reason, the um, the uh, Las Vegas police began filming themselves in the process of investigating this crime. So mm-hmm. in addition to these 10 years, I don't know how many years worth of interviews that Dateline did with Thomas, the mm-hmm. Las Vegas police were filming themselves investigating the crime. For instance, they went over with, like they did with Thomas, with the walkthrough, they went over to the house with Colleen and so that they could be with her as she was experiencing being in that house for the first time. Mm -hmm. They were looking around at what was there. They found a huge box of ammunition. Since it was her house, they didn't need a warrant and it gave them an opportunity to explore evidence that was there. And they filmed it while they were doing it And while they were filming it, while they were doing it, Thomas returns from Utah and shows up at the house 
to get his stuff. And it was quite the encounter, all of which mm-hmm. was captured on camera unexpectedly. It's quite the encounter, but the other creepy part of Thomas is he never really raises his voice. Like, he never shows anything that I would describe as fury or rage. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So the detective that's really on this case is Detective Dino Kelly, but he has a partner. I mean, he is the reason that this case is the case. Yeah, and that's what Right from the start, he smelled a rat from the beginning of this story. His partner, yeah, ultimately says that... He says that Dean is the reason that that we stuck on this, that it just would have been a a justified shooting. It would have been, yeah. yeah. It would have been a home invasion shooting and there would have been no further, but Dean just smelled a rat right from the start and he never, never lets it go, which is significant because ultimately that's over a period of, well, it's 13 years and counting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, early on, though, he goes to the prosecutor in Las Vegas, David Stanton, and he, he says, this is what we've got. And Stanton says, yeah, it's not enough. You don't have enough. I mean, they, they saw that why he was suspicious, but they couldn't see how they could take it to trial and make it stick. And they didn't want to waste the case. The guy seemed like he probably did it, but at this point, it was inference and strange. Like... The recruiting the guy and the get the yeah let's get into that we, we we skipped over that they've discovered they they've explored the relationship between Mike Miller the alleged intruder who was shot and killed and they've gone to North Carolina to talk to his brothers and his brothers have basically led him to an old friend of Mike's name well was Judy that Archie. before or after I the, um, remember, the DA sent him just, out yeah. Well, well, I don't know. Let's just get into it. because. But initially, there was this strangeness of this guy who he yeah. had just sort of adopted, brought in, was paying him on a regular basis to do, like, be a handyman and had ongoing access to, to the house. So you could maybe kind of see the story, but it was very, it was, it was another thing that O'Kelly found suspicious. So when the DA said, that's not enough, I need more. That was the place, one of the places that they began was with, um, was with the guy, with Mike. Mm -hmm. Um, and they went to visit his family in North Carolina to find out about him, about the other guy, the other victim in this crime. And there's an old friend of his named Judy Archie who doesn't appear on camera, but you hear her voice and you see the detectives interviewing her. And she basically says point blank, this white guy who was hiring me to do all this work wanted me to kill his wife. He was basically offering to hire me to kill his wife. And Judy was like, why are you hanging out with this son of a bitch? Like, what are you doing with this guy? So that's all. Okay, so that's really suspicious. Right. But they start to look at Tom Randolph's past and they discover what ultimately becomes the title of the second episode in the series. Six wives, four funerals. Four of his wives are dead. 
Right. And some of them, like, and in a, in a series of really unusual, suspicious, and often coincidental circumstances, four of his wives are dead. Mm-hmm. It begins, yeah. so they go back to the beginning of the Tom um, Randolph story and begin to explore just what that means. And they started with um, his first wife didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And they got a divorce. She did find out he had taken out some life insurance on her, which they got married when they were 18. So that was a little weird. Excuse me. I tossed my pen there. Um, after they break up and she ends up getting together with a friend of his, the friend reveals, yeah, Tom would routinely bring up this idea of whether or not I would be willing to kill somebody else's or willing. I, maybe he didn't even say wife, but kill for money. Was no, because by money? then he was actually the friend's wife. Catherine was right. actually his friend's wife. And he was starting to see if he could, because he still had the policies with her, with him as the beneficiary uh, on the first wife. Wasn't that an interesting pronunciation of beneficiary? I, like, what, what, beneficiary. I, what did I pronounce the it's other my day? Italian, I my Italian Sub- beneficiary. Subsidiary, what? isn't that what I said to you on the phone the other day? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Beneficiary, that's my, uh, yes. Um, but he was trying to get him to kill his own wife by that yeah. point because she was no longer married to Tom. Um, that wasn't certain. He never actually asked that, but he regularly asked if he would be willing to kill somebody for money. And this becomes a pattern <laughs> is what happens. Apparently he asks everybody. Yes, it was sort of like his, his conversation starter. Would you be willing to kill somebody for money? Was I, I, the number of people he asked that was really, it grew to be a kind of astonishing. And it evolved into, would you be willing to kill my current wife for money? So what happens is he then remarries. He remarries a woman named Becky. And it sort of gets revealed over time that Becky was a very troubled woman. She was dealing with addiction issues. She was dealing with a lot of mental health issues. And he was a drug dealer at that point. So it was yeah. kind of like, you know, she was... Uh, drinking up the profits or whatever. She was, you know, right there at the source. And her family says he got her addicted so that Mm. her addiction Mm -hmm. issues were as a result of her marrying him. But he also did horrible things to her, like he kept a room in the basement where he would bring other women in to have sex with and make her watch. And I mean, her family, this was in 1980 when she died, right? And her family would still burst into tears when they talked about her. They were devastated. So it was clearly quite a devastating experience for everybody. They were they were completely devastated. They interview an aunt of hers who is just burst into tears every every few seconds when she has to relive the story. It's it's terrible. So Becky, um, they think shoots herself, and when the cops arrive, they encounter a note. They encounter Becky in bed. But one of the cops who was working the case said, there's just no way, given the position of the gun and given the position of the hand, that she was able to shoot herself. Yeah, that, that she would no have had way. to turn the, the gun upside down and stand on her head. That it was just, it wasn't physically possible. But because they dealt with it as a suicide, mm-hmm. there was a break in the, I don't know, chain of evidence, if you will. Mm-hmm. During which time Tom rushed into the house, repainted, threw everything mm-hmm. out, cleaned everything up, and destroyed any possible evidence so that by the time that anybody had the chance to think of investigating the crime as such, mm-hmm. there was nothing mm-hmm. to investigate. Yeah. And so um, 
But that didn't stop a detective in Utah, which is where his marriage to Becky happened, from really uh, picking it up later and sort of prying into it and really puts together what they think is enough evidence to send Tom to trial for murder in Becky's Well, death. what happens is he finds a witness mm-hmm. who says, oh, yeah, Tom absolutely said, offered, tried to get me, tried to pay me right. to murder his wife. Right. That... I'm and so he became their star witness. Um, yeah, and they you know they brought him in to testify against him, saying yeah, like ultimately he chickened out, w- says he warned Becky, mm-hmm. um, and then left town, literally ran away and left town because he was so terrified of Tom. Tom said, "You already know too much." After he'd asked him to kill his wife. You already know too much, so either it's you or her. So he said they went through all these bizarre rehearsals of mm-hmm. um, of killing her like it was a home invasion. He even rehearsed a version of what he what ultimately happened with Sharon, where they come home and there is a burglar in the house and the burglar kills um, Sharon and then um, either shoots at or shoots him, but not fatally, Tom, I mean, Um there was all there was a whole series of of um these rehearsals and yeah the one uh, where they were camping the and he let the range. parking brake go on the car so it would roll her over in the tent or the sleeping yeah, bag that was, was one of the possibilities of horrible to, yeah. yeah just a whole series of rehearsals of murder and yeah um the guy freaked out ultimately and ran away but he was right. willing to testify against him so he came to court and testified that that was in fact what had happened that. He, that Tom had tried to hire him to kill Becky, that he had warned Becky of that um, because she was, at the time of her death, she had called her family and said she needed to come home to mm-hmm. get some of her stuff, mm-hmm. and she never made it. Yes. And uh, so the trial uh, in this death happens in 1986. Thomas goes to trial for Becky Randolph's alleged murder. Uh, Lieutenant Scott Conley is the Utah detective. So six who years really, after the fact, yeah. right? Yeah, so six years after the fact. This is the beginning of the guy learning how to game the system, right? Learning how to delay, learning how to stall things, which is going to come. Or that we know of, like, you know. Um, So uh, he gets off. He does not get convicted, and they show file footage, news footage of Becky's mother, Martha DeGraw, who's not interviewed. I assume she was no longer with us, standing outside of the courthouse saying, he will do this to another woman's daughter. Yeah. He will do this again. And I'm going to put in a pen right here because Mm -hmm. something happens right here that kind of affected my appreciation of the whole series, the whole three-part series. Two things happen here, and I really, you know, I, I, I am a Dateline devotee, and I think... They failed, and oh, I think they failed whoa. right, and I think they failed right here because two huge things happen here that they do not ever mention again or account for. Okay. First thing is, um, Tom benefits from Becky's death. He inherits mm-hmm. money from, um. From her life insurance policy. Life insurance policies don't pay out for suicides. So if she killed herself, I don't understand how he got life insurance money. Hmm. Like, there clearly he did, but there is never any explanation offered 
for how he got, how in any way he would benefit from uh, from uh, Becky's suicide mm-hmm. because life insurance does not typically pay on suicides. Maybe there are exception accounts, but I don't think so because otherwise it would be the way to get your family out of debt would be go out, mm-hmm. buy an insurance policy and shoot yourself. Like that's, that's just something that, you know, they build into insurance policies. The second thing that happened here that... And this was the one that just completely drove me insane for the oh. remainder of the of mm-hmm. the of the series. I was screaming at the television set. The other thing that happened here was during the course of Becky's trial, Tom went out, solicited and hired a killer to murder his friend. What was his friend's name? The witness, the star witness? Eric Tarantino. Eric Tarantino, right? It's like right? the made-up name. Um, uh, he went out and hired, and it turns out that the hitman that he hired was an undercover agent working for the DA who was prosecuting this case, so they busted him for it and mm-hmm. brought him in, and he actually got convicted and went to prison for it. So there was actually a, a conviction for murder for hire, solicitation of murder for hire on his record, which Mm -hmm. I would think would be an incredibly incriminating piece of evidence to present at a later trial where you're accusing him of murder for hire and even bringing back the original witness who he hired somebody to kill. Mm -hmm. And they never mention it again. They never even mention that he'd been to prison Again, it never comes up. It's never part of the trial. Maybe it was ruled out by the judge, but they never tell us that. They never Mm. explain why, if you're trying to prove that a man hired somebody to murder his wife and then murdered the guy that he hired to cover his tracks, why that wouldn't be evidence in his case. They never explain why that's not brought up again. And it just drove me out of my mind. I mm-hmm. needed to know. It's like, it's like now they have to account for in 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 uh, adventure shows, in cop shows, or whatever. They have to account for why the cell phone isn't working mm-hmm. before you ha- you can say he couldn't call anybody. You have mm-hmm. to include that, or everybody just says, "Well, why doesn't he just call on the cell phone?" Like, why didn't they just say? Mm-hmm. And this is a man who actually went to prison for solicitation of murder for hire. And right. then never get those two things happen in this case, and then they never are explained again. And I have to say, that is a fail on the part of the reporting of this particular episode and on this producer's part, at the very least, but I think in the assemblage of the show, because there has to have been an explanation for those two things, and all they needed to do was include it. <laughs> You're a grand and storied TV network that's been around for years. Saturday Night Live, Dateline, a powerhouse news division, and a must-watch TV legacy. But now, there's a new kid in platform town. Streaming. With years of content and more new programming all the time, you'd think that NBC would be a perfect fit for this newfangled world of streaming content. 
but you'd be so wrong. Plenty of other streamer-come-latelys have had their troubles. HBO Max actually prevented tens of millions of their subscribers from streaming programming they'd already been watching for years by closing apps that had been working perfectly and not replacing them. Apple Plus ruled out more than half of their customer base because they wanted to, wait for it, sell people new Apple devices in order to access their programming. Spectrum produces a whole slate of programs, but never produced an app to allow most viewers to watch. The list goes on and on, but nobody has found a way to get streaming wrong in more ways than NBC and their streaming turkey, Peacock. Most consumers can't view NBC without buying an app that NBC doesn't make or sell or explain how to use on their site. You can pay for Peacock's premium no commercial service, but NBC waits weeks to post their new programming and it still often has commercials apparently. Only a fraction of their vast libraries of content are available to watch. Meanwhile, what's missing is available on other streaming platforms at an additional cost. Furthermore, finding anything on the website is very difficult and there is still no app that works on my devices, so I don't even know how to search or stream or find out what's available on Peacock. That's why we here at TDPS are kicking off the hashtag Save the Peacock campaign. While we hope these messages of help and encouragement will reach their intended audience, given the technical screw-ups at the big fumbling bird in question, we're not sure anyone who works there knows how to listen to podcasts either. Maybe we should try a newspaper campaign or a call on the clue phone. The point is, we're desperate to help this flightless bird get off the ground and onto the televisions of people like ourselves who are actually paying for your streaming services but still can't use them because you're still trying to figure out how to shove a TV network from the 1980s through a fiber optic cable. This week's tip, Dear Peacock, we can't watch what isn't there. If you're promoting Peacock as the destination to view the shows on your network, you actually have to put them on Peacock. Then and only then will Peacock subscribers be able to watch them on Peacock. But if you wait until after the next week's episode airs on commercial television, your subscriber will be paying for the privilege of being a week behind on some of your most popular shows. If they want to stay current, they might stop watching your streaming platform on a regular basis and then possibly altogether. And if they stop watching it, chances are they'll, wait for it, stop paying for it too. Or they could just stop watching your shows altogether, in which case literally everyone who works at your giant corporation loses. So Peacock, unless you're trying to stop your subscribers from seeing what you're selling them, you actually have to put your programming on Peacock at the same time that you put it on your network. But we're not ready to stick a fork in this turkey. We're far from done, and we want to encourage all of our party people to join in. There's plenty to go around. Tweet, Facebook, Instagram, post and comment your suggestions using the hashtag, hashtag SaveThePeacock, and tell us how Peacock TV and NBC might actually call their streamer a service and earn the right to charge you money for subscriptions. Hashtag SaveThePeacock, because this dead bird won't be a fit feast until it's finally roasted. Don't hold back. 
We didn't. Release the datelines! It's not just about dateline, Christopher. It's always just about dateline. Hashtag save the peacock. So after Becky, it starts to be a pattern. He moves to Indiana. Right. There's another woman, Gaina, Guyana. Yeah, Gaina, I thought it was, but yeah, something like that. G-A-Y-A, maybe. But there's something here that throws off the pattern for Tom, right? We were, we were you, yeah, that he goes and tries to solicit a man. To, to Oh, right. He does. He tries. He does the same thing that he usually does. He tries to groom a guy to kill his wife. And when he presents it, he says, because he tells the guy you would sh- he would kill the wife and then you would shoot me in the leg so that it looks like I'm not. But again, it's very much a description of what was uh, maybe supposed to happen with Sharon or what he told Mike when he kills Sharon. So, um, but what does happen... And, and the guy tells him to go to hell. Tells the guy him tells him to I'm go to hell. That. So Tom one day is cleaning his gun at the living room, at the dining room table with, with Gaina sit, standing right by and the gun just Which goes off. Which is one of the scenarios that he he that he rehearsed with Eric... Um, What's his name? Tarantino um, was the cleaning the gun and she accidentally gets killed and he actually tries it and shoots the kitchen cabinet right next to her. So yeah. it's sort of a fail. And she just says, uh, you know what? I got to go. But she packs up in the middle of the day while he's at work and gets out of right. there because she's afraid of him. She thinks he's psycho. Yeah. She hits the and they get divorced. So that doesn't pan out for him. But it's again more evidence. And as they continue to follow the trail, the evidence mounts. The next wife maybe dies of natural causes. There was very little coverage of her. And then the wife after that, wasn't that Francis? Uh, no. Yeah, the one who dies of natural causes dies. It sounded like she was a big party girl. She died of cancer a decade after she divorced him. So there's not really any evidence that he had anything to do with her death. But then he meets Francis, and that, for me, was the most chilling part of the story. That was the Francis had a congenital heart defect. She had a leaky heart valve from birth. The According to her sisters, Carolyn and Hilda, they believed that Thomas convinced Francis to have a surgery that that carried a lot of risk, that wasn't necessarily required, it wasn't necessarily going to resolve her issue, but he convinced her to have it. Francis had a daughter named Rachel, who Thomas was very fatherly with. During the recovery, Thomas asked Rachel to leave the room, says, I need some time alone with your mother. And when Rachel comes back, Thomas is on the floor crying, and Francis has died just died and there was no indication her recovery Even was though not going everybody well. said she was sitting up talking the surgery had been successful she was recovering nicely there was no and there's no real indication of what goes on he had coerced her into creating a video video will, will which everybody involved who knows will says is really odd it was strange but it, he said it was about custody of the daughter. And one of the things he has her say in the video is that she wants to be cremated. So he does, which destroys any evidence. The daughter believes that he was being, he was poisoning her right along. But the that, sisters, the sisters say that too. Carolyn says she was in such bad shape by the time she got to the hospital for surgery. I'm convinced that he was poisoning her. That she, And in every picture they show of her family photo, she looks terrible. She looks just sort of tired. And in the video, she's sluggish. The hair and, starts to to look bad or like oh, it's falling God. out like she yeah she doesn't she's not looking good but she did have a congenital heart defect so there's some but it's like yeah i'm not sure what he did did he put a pillow over her face i don't know but 
again, because she's in that she's already a vulnerable, there's not a big investigation of the crime because it's the sort of thing that happens. Somebody with yeah. a really bad heart goes in for heart surgery and doesn't make it out. And that's not, it wasn't seen as that unusual. The daughter, on the other hand, never believed it. The family didn't. And we should be clear that the daughter at the time loved him and saw him as being very much a father figure. We're la- we later learned some stuff that's pretty upsetting, but she didn't as a, as a, I think she was like 12 when this happened. She didn't see until later what she really thought she was being put through and her mother was being put through. So, okay, the, did we cover the six and the four? I think we got all of them, right? Six marriages, four funerals, right? That was This the, is the fifth wife and the sixth wife was Sharon. Was so Sharon. I think so, we're... We're he back gets, up to the murder that we started investigating at the beginning of this 12-hour series. He gets the hell out of Indiana because he's already done enough damage there. He goes to Las Vegas. He hops on Tinder, I think, which is how he meets Sharon. They get married very quickly, and we're back at where we sort of started this whole story. So we're back at the detectives from Las Vegas feeling that they finally have enough to go to trial. And the way that we have found out all of this stuff about all of these wives and all of these people along the way is that the detectives were going to meet with all of these people and yes. finding all of this out as they built their case to against this guy. So they go back to the DA with all the stuff that they've found out. Right. And the DA asks them a question at this point, which I thought was really interesting. What? The, the premise of the crime is that Mike actually killed the guy's wife, Tom's wife, and then he kills Mike to cover his tracks. And the DA asks, well, is it possible that Tom actually shot his wife and then Mike? Mm -hmm. Because it's the same gun, right? Right. They get in a struggle. He takes the gun from Mike in in his story and then shoots Mike with it. So he could have just shot his wife and then shot Mike. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that there was no, that Mike could have been in their house because he was waiting for them. And you know, Sharon like, wouldn't, it, because he'd done handiwork around the house, if Sharon walked in on Mike, she would have been like, hey, Mike. She wouldn't have been like, ah, and she wouldn't have run from that hallway where she ended up dying or being found dead. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, so right. I, it's, to me, it was like, yeah, I you could really make a case for that, that Mike never did anything at all. Because while there was discussion of a gun, the gun was there in the house. Yeah. But okay, so let's talk about what the what the the trial and get back to some of the points you were making earlier. Oh my god! Because if you've watched anything, if you watch any special like this ever, you know what's coming, which is are prior bad acts going to be admissible? The judge has to decide if everything from Utah, the previous court case, if that's relevant to the charges brought against Thomas in Las Vegas. And the case that they pick is Becky's. The one where he was acquitted of murdering her, mm-hmm. but then convicted for mm-hmm. hiring somebody. But they don't ever mention the conviction. They only mention the case where he was acquitted, mm. which is weird. And which becomes a big component of the defense. The eventual defense, because he ends up firing 10 lawyers over a course of about eight years, which delays the trial again and again and again, year after year. But the eventual defense the says while, they're putting him on trial in prison. for- Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they arrest him. They go to his mother's house in Utah. They get the Utah authorities to actually arrest Tom in kind of a, it was a mess, but he kind of deserved it. He was being, mm-hmm. again, you know, trying to 
be the cocky guy who was going to, well, I was holding on to the door because you, I didn't show you my hand because I was holding on to the door for support and they knock him down and taser him because mm-hmm. he won't show him his hands. And he's, you know, a firearms enthusiast. So for their own safety anyway. Yeah. So they, they bring him back, they put him in jail, they go to court and they ask the judge, can we admit this evidence from Becky's, trial and that's a big decision and eventually it goes their way they can use the becky evidence and then tom begins a campaign of delaying and delaying and delaying at one point one of the people says i wonder if he's waiting for all of the witnesses to die mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it's nearly 10 years eight years how i don't even it was I, eight forever. years i think it was about eight years they say 10 in the special but we saw some coverage recently separate from the special that said it was an eight-year period tom also says something during this expansive time which we're just going to put out there he says i've been told that if they allow the utah evidence in i'll get convicted of murder and then the nevada supreme court will overturn it and when he says it you're thinking well he's an arrogant prick what does he know Put a pin in that, folks. Yeah. yeah. But he's. But the other thing that he does is because he's this narcissist, self-proclaimed narcissist, mm-hmm. and I believe psychopathic nar- narcissist, um, he strikes up a deal to begin doing an ongoing series of interviews. So you have back and forth mm-hmm. through time over all these years. Nearly an hour of mm-hmm. the show is devoted to the time period that he is in prison Mm-hmm. conducting interviews like he's been elected president with mm-hmm. the press about the ins and outs of the case and you're firing any number of lawyers, some of whom participate in the videos and some of whom don't, mm-hmm. um, that eventually leads to his trial. And when did he finally go to trial? It was 2016, 2017. It was 2017. 2017. So arrested in 2009 and in 2017, he finally goes to trial. And he's been in prison the whole time. And Eric Tarantino, the witness who claims he tried to hire him to uh, kill Becky, uh, agrees to testify in this case as well. The one who he was convicted of hiring somebody to try and kill. But they never mention that. They just bring back Eric Tarantino and put him on the stand. And what do you know? Just like Tom predicted, Mm -hmm. he gets convicted. He gets convicted. And then... Three years later, the Nevada Supreme Court, operating in the midst of the COVID pandemic in December of 2020, overturns the conviction, just as Tom predicted. So. So. (laughs) By the end of all of this, we are left with this story where this guy is, seems pretty, like it's a pretty good case that he, in fact, hired somebody to kill his wife and then killed the guy to cover his tracks or at least set him up to be his fall guy, because I think that the DA's suggestion that he shot his wife too is also pretty credible, like mm-hmm. that he just killed Mike while he was there, because that's the part that most remind me of, reminded me of something about Pam. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Where she brings the guy back to the house and just kills him because it's going to be part of her cover it's, story. It's actually called The Thing About Pam, but I love that you call it that because it makes it sound like a screwball comedy and not a diabolical <laughs> murder plot. But it's a previous... We did an episode of it. I can't remember what number. The Thing About Pam. It was a Dateline 
It was another Dateline special. They did a, their I mean, own podcast. and I loved it. It there, was one of my gonna favorites. Be, it's going to be a movie with Renee Zellweger. She's going to play I Pam. I can't wait. It's I like can't wait. I can't wait. It's a terrific story. But it's the same sort of narcissistic psychopath. She kills yeah. her best friend for insurance money and, and apparently a whole host of other people, too, over the course of her life. But it's people who only see people as, you know, instruments of their own benefit, whatever. Right like chopped up into dinner if they need them for that. Right. Um, and that seems to be who Todd is. But at this point, while he is still in prison, because the other thing the Supreme Court did was they remanded him. They right. didn't let him out because right. everybody, it seems pretty clear to everybody that he'll just kill somebody else if you let him. Um, but they did, they overturned his conviction. He gets a new trial and it's not going to include that evidence. I hope that it will include the fact that he was convicted of hiring somebody. Okay, walk to me through murder. Walk us through how you would have brought the case against him. I mean, you've sort of already said it, but walk us through. You you would not have brought Becky's case up at trial. You would have brought the murder for hire plot that happened during Becky's case. I would have established the whole timeline of his his ongoing efforts to hire somebody to kill his wife. How many different evidence, how many different people? There's the man who ended up marrying his first wife, who he tried to hire. There's the guy who he tried to hire to kill his second wife. Mm -hmm. There's the guy who he tried to hire to kill his third wife. Mm -hmm. There's the guy. And then there's the sister of the guy who he did kill, who he said tried to kill his his mm -hmm. sixth wife, mm -hmm. testifying that she said he was trying to hire to call it, which is hearsay. So that would have been the hardest to admit unless you brought her in to testify to the fact. And again, that would have been a challenge, but she could have been an actual witness in the case. Um, and then what do you know? We also have an actual conviction of him hiring somebody turned out to be an undercover officer, but hiring somebody to murder a witness in the case. And the witness was somebody who was testifying to the fact that he tried to hire him to kill his wife. You said that is the pattern mm -hmm. that you want to establish. And there's, there may well be a legal reason for why. Do you think it's got anything to do with the fact that they couldn't indefatigably prove that Mike was hired? Right. They they only do you think maybe that was part of it that they couldn't ever prove that Mike had said, yes, I'm going to kill your wife. They just had Mike telling people in North Carolina, old friends of his, this guy wants me to kill his wife. But it's still their premise. It's still mm -hmm. the premise of their case, whether they could prove it or not. I right. think that an actual conviction for soliciting murder for hire is much more convincing evidence. It mm -hmm. it shows a pattern. It shows it goes to, you know, the, the guy's own practices. This is his M.O. Yeah. Yeah. He hires people to kill people who are inconvenient for him mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And here's an actual conviction of him of, of him doing it in this particular case. I just it's sort of like the Trayvon Martin case when mm -hmm. they that guy I would have asked every if I had been trying that case, I would have asked every single witnesses and Marsha Clark said I couldn't. But I would have asked every single witness who was on the stand. Do you think that if whatever butthead's name, the monster who murdered that child, George Zimmerman, um, yeah. I don't ever like I don't need he doesn't need any publicity from us. But if you think if George had had stayed in his car as the police instructed him to do, if he had followed 
instructions from mm-hmm. the police, do you think Trayvon Martin would be dead? Mm-hmm. And the answer in every case would have to have been no, because George killed him because he didn't follow instructions from the police mm-hmm. and murdered that child in his own neighborhood. I would have made that the crux of the case because that's the thing that killed that child was he okay. got out of his car. Right. Let's. I want to ask you, though, prior bad acts, this whole thing, the reasons for reversal on by the Nevada Supreme Court. What do we feel about that? Like, I know we're not legal experts, but like, why is it, why is the assumption that they, I guess the idea is that a prosecutor that doesn't have enough proof of the actual crime they have brought charges for um, can just go fishing in somebody's past and say, well, they acted similarly in the past, so clearly they're guilty of this now, even though I don't have gunshot residue, I don't have this, I don't have that. I imagine that's the reason for excluding it. Like, you stay focused on the crime at hand, but at the same time, Patterns are relevant. Patterns go to premeditation. It just, it seems like the judge's decision a, to allow like, it. Right. Then do, then prosecute him on RICO charges. You know what right. I mean? Like this is a crime organization. This is an ongoing crime enterprise that this guy has been conducting over a period of 30 years now right. that we know of. Yeah. Like I just, I, like okay. I say, there is probably a reason for them not including the conviction. Mm-hmm. But if they asked for and got to include the this this crime that he was acquitted for, right? Why wouldn't they have asked for the other? And if they did and were denied it, why not say that? Mm-hmm. We could do a whole podcast series about our feelings about this, but this was um, quite a supersized, deep dive, multi-level, multi-character. Cross country. I mean, just all Washington State, Nevada, thirty years, Indiana, thirty. Just unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, and we don't know the end of the story yet, right? Like we don't know. Also disappointing. I am yeah. not a big fan of of episodes that do not end with a conclusion because closure is the number one thing I like to get out of. Um, a true crime experience. This one is a broader picture and I understand why they are where they are. But yeah, I, this was a fail for me. I was not, mm-hmm. I did not think this was up to Dateline's usual standards. And as you say, they didn't even really issue it as a Dateline episode mm-hmm. no. on Peacock. And no. you're right. It didn't include Lester or mm-hmm. uh, Keith or any of the usual gang. Um, it was from also, the, in ter- we left all this out, it was really repetitive. There was a lot of, it was almost like they were trying to capture with each subsequent episode a new audience. They just sort of puffed it up a little bit and it was, you know. I guess, but yeah. honestly, if you're going to go down on repetitive, this is, you're not going to be a Dateline fan. <laughs> yeah, I know, because they're they, always they, coming they, back every, from the commercial yes. breaks. All right, so next week we're back with a traditional true crime TV club oh, and our standard okay. disclaimers apply. Um, you do not need to watch the episode of television in question. We will serve it up for you in such detail you will feel like you had, and you will be spared the repetitions that we often complain about and that our party person, Cindy Comforti, <laughs> complains about. Um, we have found an Easter Sunday-themed murder for an Easter Sunday episode, and that oh. is uh, the Lake Erie Murders is the series in question. The episode is entitled Black Sabbath, and it's season two. Episode four, that's the Lake Erie murders. And uh, yeah, whether or not it will be another family massacre on a holy holiday, we'll have to see. Every holiday episode oh, we've done has involved a family massacre. Maybe this will be different. Here's We're just thing. trying to be topical and keep in yeah. terms with the, the calendar. But yeah, there is a certain amount of that. There have been some pretty, we've had some pretty rough holiday 
uh, True Crime TV Club episode. Rough, rough, incredibly rough. But uh, until then, and forever after, Easter, Christmas, and otherwise, I'm Christopher Rice. (laughs) And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.